When I was preparing for uh, this message, I realized I probably needed to take one step further back because this is actually a series of messages about what the Lord Jesus meant when he said, I will build my church. And uh, I then went to Google Images to find what I thought might be an appropriate graphic for building my church. And you know what I saw mostly? Spires, steeples, bricks and mortar, the church in the wildwood, and that kind of image. I came back to this image. You can see it there, right? What do you see? You see the Lord Jesus and the cross. Okay, I will build my church. And Jesus is continuing to build his church. And we must never lose sight of that reality. Must never lose sight. Sometimes we have church fights. Right? And what are we fighting over? Is it about that? Not very often, is it? When we fight over that, it's when some are genuinely departing from the truth. I will build my church. And some of you may be upset with me over the next few weeks when I deconstruct your understanding of church. It's become, I think, in some ways a liability because we no longer understand what Jesus meant. But we're going to have some fun together, I hope. All right? When he said, I will build my church, he said, I will build my gathered community. And unfortunately, very often, we think that, oh, well, this is the first appearance of the word church, and we think it has no roots, no background. Well, one of the things we will explore is the reality that there is a profound and deep foundation in the Old Testament. And Jesus is making claim of divine authority. What we want to focus on this morning is this prophecy. Because this is a prophecy. And it is a consequential prophecy. Now, some of the things we'll look at is, uh, who is this Jesus? You remember that this passage begins with the question, who do people say that I am, or that the Son of Man is? Who in the world is the Son of Man? How, how many times do you use the phrase Son of Man this week? Oh, about that many. All right. So, and what is Jesus actually claiming? We'll look at all these things over the next little while. But I want you to understand that what we have here is a prophecy of the first order. And it is an easy one for us to evaluate. Is Jesus building his church? Yes. Is he finished? No. Some say, well, the growth of the church over the last 2,000 years is not miraculous. Well, I want you to think about all the other groups that were claiming uh, disciples, followers back then. And you, I have a quotation here in the first century 
Religious life was a bewildering mass of alternatives. You want to follow Isis, or not what you're thinking, Isis, or Osiris, or Sibyl, or Dionysus, or the Mithras, all different particular ideologies, or emperor worship, or any of the 30,000 plus gods that they had. Why should Christianity succeed above all others? That's the reality. Why? And so here's some stats. Can you see them all? Let's say by the year 480, there were maybe less than 10,000 followers. That's an approximation. And you'll see by the year 1900, there are about 400 million. That's a pretty good return on the investment, don't you think? I will build my church. Is it happening? It was an unbelievable statement that Jesus makes when he says, I will build my church. There was no reason, humanly speaking, to think that his movement would grow. Here he was in the backwater of the Roman Empire, far from the centers of power and influence. And yet, I will build my church. The fact that you and I are sitting here is proof of that prophecy. This one is really easy to get hold of. Now, I'm going to tell you something about stats. This is a quotation from Mark Twain, and there's a particular way of expressing something that is not necessarily the way I would want to say it. But he says there are three kinds of lies. Lies, really bad lies. Don't lo look at the word if, if, you, if you don't like it there, but that's what Mark Twain said. And statistics. And I'm going to give you some statistics, okay? <laughs> now, let's understand that there are always inherent difficulties with statistics. And people will say, oh, well, you will tell me that there are 2.2 billion followers of Jesus today. And you'll say, oh, there's a lot of nominal followers. True. But there are lots of nominal followers of movements and faiths, such as atheism, Atheism is a faith system as much as anything else. Muslims, Hindus, and everybody, everything else. The result is the same. Christianity remains the most dominant of the world and is still growing at an astonishing rate. One stat that India will not want you to know. And India is one of the countries that is in the top 15 of persecuting followers of Jesus, that the fastest growing movement in India is Christianity. 2.2 billion people, one-third of the world population. Isn't that astonishing? Okay. And, and there are folk here, and probably folk listening, who will say, well, we're living in Canada. Canada's not a Christian country. Agreed. But let me tell you, the quality and the fabric of Canadian life is profoundly different because of the salt and light that biblical truth has been in this culture. All you need to do is step out of it, and you will understand how profoundly different it is when you live in a culture dominated by a different worldview. And so there are many folk who will say, well, I'm not 
a Christian, I don't believe all this stuff, and yet so many of the things that are simply quality of life issues in our country arise directly out of biblical values. Do you value love and family and so on? Yes, those are values that are affirmed by the Christian faith in a way unlike anywhere else. You're going to say, well, other people uh, appreciate love and family and so on. Yes, but what worldview actually reinforces that? Holds that up as a significant value? You'll see there is a uniqueness to the way of Jesus. So here, are, here is how the pie is divided. 31.5% Christian, 23.2% Muslim, 163 unaffiliated. In Canada, that's about 30%. So our stats are changing. But even in that 30%, as I've indicated, profoundly and deeply shaped by Christian values. 15% Hindu and 14% all the rest. But appreciate that in the building of his church right now, seven out of eight Christians live in places where Christians are the majority. It's quite astonishing. No other faith covers the globe. Yes, Hinduism is a significant group, but where is it concentrated? Anybody know? India! You know that. And what about Islam? It is concentrated in the Middle East, in what we often call the 1040 window. And what is the solution for every other group in dealing with Christians? Persecution. We'll talk about that later. This is a reality, a significant reality, and that in itself is important for us to understand. So here you see the distribution, and you'll see that there is a significant population in every place except, and I don't have a pointer, you see the little dot? That's the Middle East. And that's only about 0.8% of the world's population. Very small. Why? Not because Christianity is not significant, but it's also the place where persecution is concentrated. Okay? If you know your history, you will know that when Islam was born in Saudi Arabia, that there was a concerted movement to advance Islam, how? By the sword. And so countries that we think of now as a Muslim, like Egypt and Libya and Syria, and we can go on down the list, were all, at least nominally, Christian. Okay? How did that happen? 500 years of pretty concerted advance by violence, okay? This is simply a reality of history. I'm not making this up. I'm not speaking bad of anybody. I'm just telling you that this is how it's unfolded. So to summarize where we are, we are part of a movement that is some 2.2 billion people strong. Now we identify particularly with evangelicals, those who believe that your faith in Jesus must be personal, that his blood covers our sins, that we gain sacrifice, or, or we gain forgiveness through the sacrifice that he's made on the cross, 
And let's understand that this movement continues to grow significantly. In the midst of the terrible things that have been happening in Syria, there are thousands, I do not exaggerate, thousands who are coming to Jesus. Because what do they see in the message of Jesus? Something that they've never seen. And so one of the uh, benefits, if you like, strange word to use perhaps, of war is that it creates a thaw in which people can then look at options, look at alternatives. And so what do they see in the teaching of Jesus? Something beautiful, something worthy. Let's understand that Christians are the most persecuted group in the world. So we read about terrible things like happened in Sri Lanka. The press also tends to play down the Christian aspect of that, but that tells you about something in the bias of the press that has a particular faith, a particular ideology in our land. It is not neutral. But let's understand that this is going on all the time for believers just like you and me. So here are a few stats. 345 Christians are killed for faith-related reasons in this year. 105 churches and Christian buildings burned. 219 Christians detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. And we'll look at a particular episode. Here are the list of those who are the top 16 on the watch list. And you'll see that North Korea is at the top. It is a dangerous thing to be a Christian in these countries. It is a dangerous thing to step out and say, I've decided to follow Jesus. Is this consequential? Yes, we would not want to live in that kind of country. But let's understand why we have that mindset. It's essentially because of a biblical perspective on the dignity that we have and the right that we have to make a choice even about the God whom we serve. You'll see that the most dominant reason for or motivation for uh, it being difficult for Christians for persecution is actually Islamic oppression. We'll talk about a little more about that. Now understand that this is in no way an excuse or a reason to think negatively about them. Because I'll tell you, when they are free to choose, what do they want? They say, we want what you have. We want to know the God who loves us. The forgiveness that we have in Jesus. We want to be free to follow our conscience, to follow our God. So, <clears throat> here is a statement that was passed uh, by the UN in 1966. This is just the first of four statements in which we have, everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. Do you agree with that? Yes! So ask yourself again, what's the background that this should come up at the UN? This is fundamentally out of a Christian worldview. This right shall include freedom to have and or to adopt a religion or believe of his choice and freedom, either individually or in community, with others and in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in worship, observance, practice, and teaching. Beautiful statement. But you also know that this is actually under attack in our country from secularists. 
You know some of the laws that Quebec is in, in specifically trying to pass. But there is a mind attitude. The Canada Summer Jobs Program for youth. That was another example in which there was an ideology that the government was trying to impose in order to qualify that suddenly put the ability of churches to be able to hire students using a grant from this particular uh, program by the government. Now, the other three statements are free to have or adopt belief of their own choosing. I can tell you that in the, that list of 16, if you say, I've decided to follow Jesus, you will be in trouble, at least for a day or two. After that, you just might not be around. And the uh, third saying, or third statement of this uh, UN covenant is freedom uh, limited only by legal, uh, by legal, by the law, and by out of necessity. And of course, this is a bit of a loophole to do some pretty oppressive things, unfortunately. And the fourth is freedom to educate your children in your belief system. And we say, yes, yes, yes. That's consistent with what we understand we have in Jesus. But don't be fooled. This is not humanism. This is, in fact, the underlying Christian ethic which is showing itself. Here are some charts with graphs. And you'll see that this is, for, by the way, from Open Doors Ministry. You can check this on, online. And you'll see that this year, this many folk have been affected in this way. For example, 1,266 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. That's brothers and sisters. And then, please note the difference between 2018 and 2019. We've gone from 215 million Christians being persecuted to 245. So, persecution is not diminishing. So if we have a government that wants to stand for human rights, maybe it should take note of what's actually happening. You will know that under the previous government, there was the appointment of an ambassador for, uh, for uh, uh, religious rights to deal with issues like this. We no longer have that office. It would be good if our government paid attention to these realities. And top of the list in those persecuted and affected is women, doubly vulnerable. Understand, one in nine Christians experience high levels of persecution worldwide. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You are in trouble, doctor. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Kaylee, you are in trouble. Okay, do you understand? These are real people being genuinely affected by this intolerance. Now you might say, well, why are Christians the focus of this? Well, listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew 24, verse 9. Then you will be handed over to be what? Persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. You say, this is crazy. Jesus teaches a message of love. 
But what is the nature of the message of Jesus? It challenges the status quo. It will not simply accept those who are in power and want to impose injustice on people. And it is a sad fact of the history of the church that sometimes the church has become a partner in some of the worst kinds of atrocities. That's a reality. But that is not the way of Jesus. One author describes it, the Christian history, as the church of power and the church of piety. When the church wants power, it ends up in trouble. When it wants piety, that is, to live in the way of Jesus, that's when it is powerful, that's when it makes a difference. You will know the name Bishop Desmond Tutu, who was significant in the uh, struggle to end apartheid in South Africa. And he will say that the uh, whites made a mistake. They gave us the Bible. Because, see, the Bible is what speaks about fundamental human dignity, about the sacredness of all life, about the equality that we have before God. And that's, in fact, part of the fabric of what transformed the nation. Now, some of those who were the chief advocates of apartheid, of course, were good church-going folk. But they were also people who were distorting the message of Jesus. Let's not be numbered amongst them. So we will always, to some extent, be countercultural in our stance as followers of Jesus. And if we're not, and we're just like everybody else, we're making a huge mistake and we will not experience the power of God in our lives to continue to change the world. Let me just continue with verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Friend, is that happening? Yes, it is. Who could have imagined that? When you have this little group of disciples who are hearing these words, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So understand that we actually have a second prophecy, which is easily verifiable, which is unfolding right now, and has been for 2,000 years. The persecution of Christians in an extraordinary way. Why? Because of all the bad things we do? You know what we hear from the pulpit all the time, right? Be good. <laughs> Live like Jesus. I am learning to be like Jesus in my attitudes, behaviors, and character. That's what we're hearing all the time. So it's not because we are out there being bad guys, bad women. It's because we are trying to make a difference for the world for good. Now, why is this important? Because I believe it's, we sometimes adopt the idea that yeah, we come to church, we do our religious thing, and then we go on with life like everybody else. Well, if that's our attitude, we are missing the best part. But we're also missing the part that may well challenge us. You see, we are part of God's unfolding plan. And prophecy is not about Jesus, not just about Paul, but this prophecy 
Prophecy is about you and me. So when the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church, he was thinking about you and you and me. You see? We are part of this story. We have a part to play. And if we want to see the end of oppression and persecution, we may experience more along the way. Here are the words of uh, Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect strangers in the world who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by his blood. In other words, God has got a plan that he's working out. And then, in the course, we need to adopt Paul's attitude in which he says he is in prison when he's writing this, by the way, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Are you ready to say that? By life or by death, let Jesus be glorified. By life or by death, let Jesus be glorified. If you aren't there... You need to be. You say, oh man, that takes courage. Yes, it does. But let me also say, I'm not saying I'm braver than anyone else. All I'm saying is, Lord, with your help, I will be there. I will be there. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I want you to understand how current all this is. We are living this out right now. This is an email I received yesterday from India. Because our brothers and sisters are suffering right now. And so here's the text. Dear friends in the Lord, greetings in the precious name of our Savior. I'm passing along this appeal for prayer and action. If you are able to take a a step further and pass this to others, that is also appreciated. And then there's a reference to the ruling party of India and to a Hindu radical group who continue to target to persecute the first and only Christian university in India. Why? What terrible things are they doing? What terrible things are they doing? You agree with the UN covenant? And so they have imprisoned the leader, who is vice-chancellor of the university, but also the bishop of this movement called Yeshu Darvar. Well, what is the problem? Well, you see, this movement has now grown to be some four million or so. That's what the problem is. And it's an embarrassment. Here is Dr. Lull and his wife, and you might recognize somebody that you know there. And uh, I don't always dress like that, aren't you glad? And uh, some of you will also know a regional minister now, director of World Partners, Joe Zanting. This is a little snapshot of the thousands who gather at Yeshu Darvar. The thousands. So on a Sunday, actually Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, there are thousands who come in from the villages. They have their village churches, and not everybody's there all the time because as I say, there are actually millions who are following Jesus. But why do they want to show up for this big meeting? Because they run to the front 
to share a testimony of the difference that Jesus is making in their lives. And there are hundreds of testimony. To give you an idea of how big this is, when you step outside, look at the boundaries of the property of your own chapel. That's about the size of this soccer stadium-sized building. And people continue to stream in. And they're not coming in comfortable cars. Most of them are taking buses, walking, cycling, whatever, in order to gather as God's people and to experience the blessing of God. This is why they're being persecuted, because of these terrible things. They're hearing the good news of Jesus. They're hearing about the hope that they have in Jesus. This movement is feeding the hungry, caring for the poor and marginalized, educating children, (coughs) and improving agriculture. They are uh, the developers of four particular strains of rice that have increased the quality and the uh, nutrition of uh, rice in India. These are the terrible things. Never violence, never disrespect. Yet at their door there have been bombings, there have been fires, there have been riots. Why? Because they are proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It was said of uh, Dr. R.B. Lal that he defeats his enemies by prayer, not violence, and wins them by love. This is the reality of what's happening. He is in prison right now, being held without bail, without a hearing. And I hope you will join me in praying for this dear brother, who while he is in prison, being held illegally, asked if uh, they could bring him some Bibles and tracts so that he could share about Jesus. Okay? This is the reality. I will build my church. You see, this is, this is not some uh, kind of uh, uh, obscure prophecy. This is about the reality of what we are living in Jesus right now. And so you are being so good and quiet and listening that I wonder if anybody's breathing out there. Okay. But understand, we ought to be excited about this. Because Jesus is fulfilling his promise and will continue to fulfill his promise. I gassed up on the way this morning as I had stepped out and was gassing up. I was thinking, well, if someone uh, stopped uh, and came by and asked me, why are you gathering or where are you going today? What would I say? Oh, I'm going to church. Hey, doesn't quite cut it. I thought, no, I would say I'm going to a celebration a celebration of somebody who saved my life. That's why we're here, friends. And if we're not, it's time that we understood. Isn't it? Yeah. So, we are part of God's great plan. We are not insignificant. Our prayers matter. Our actions matter. Our being salt and light in our world matters. We're going to offer the Way of Jesus training again in the fall. We'll do it in a Friday-Saturday module three times and cover the same kind of material. I'm continuing to meet and follow up with a number of folk who've done this because understand 
that there is a thinking that comes when you think this way that really helps you in your journey. So that it isn't peripheral. It is indeed central, central to your life. I hope that you're listening to what God is saying right now because God is speaking, you see. And I hope that you will stand strong for Jesus and like Jesus. Some folk hear this kind of message and say, well, what we ought to do is make sure we keep all these foreigners out. You ever heard that kind of thing? We should be welcoming these foreigners so that we can share the reality of Jesus with them because we are different. We fight this battle in the way of Jesus, like Jesus, not only for Jesus. We will never protect ourselves if we take that defensive kind of stance. We will lose. That's, by the way, why we are losing. Let's get on side in living like Jesus and for Jesus and in the power of the Spirit of Jesus. We've just considered two prophecies that you and, and I both know is actually happening right now. Is I will build my church happening? Yes. And you will be persecuted. Is that happening? Yes. Both realities that continue to unfold 2,000 years later. Why? Because this is the most important message in the world. This is not just an opinion. This is fact. This is fact. God bless you as you live today and each day. We're on a journey with Jesus. Let's bless others in his name. I'm being sent by Jesus to bless others and invite them to follow him. This is the way of victory. These are the weapons of our warfare. Let's pray together. Thank you, O Lord, for loving us so much. Thank you, indeed, that you are at work in our world. And Lord, sometimes we lose sight of that, and we think that we're losing, and yet we fail to appreciate what you've actually been doing over the last 2,000 years. And you continue to do that. And there are indeed thousands who are laying down their lives, millions who are suffering just because they want to follow Jesus, that that would have an impact on us and renew in us the determination to bring you honor and glory. Thank you for loving us. And thank you that as we care about your things, we discover how you care for us. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Another promise from our Savior. Thank you for this gathering today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read one scripture. This is how we deal with life today. This is how we make an impact. And Paul reminds us, rejoice in the Lord always. So the transmission went out in your car? Does that bring you joy? <laughs> But you see, that's why he says rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And then he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.